If you are passionate about something on the inside, it's going to be very hard, unless you're someone like me, not to show it on the outside. And, and what do I mean by that? Well, I've been trained to be a flatliner emotionally, okay? Uh, at the age of 68, I'm pretty good at it, but, but occasionally uh, it comes out. So he, here's what can often happen. You start to be animated. You use your hands as you speak. You talk faster. Uh, the hair sticks up on the back of your head if you have that. Um, you, um, uh, you, what's going on on the inside? You, your color of your face may whiten. Uh, the, your pupils might may dilate. Somehow, the excitement of what's going on inside of you, the intensity, is showing, and you just can't hold it back. Well, uh, several decades ago. We bought our son one of these original uh, video game things, and he got into it. And uh, I remember that I used to tease him because he got into it in such a way that he would usually play it with his friends, but his friends would be on the ground, and he would be on the ground for a while, but eventually he would have to stand up. And, and he was really into the game, wanting to get to the next level. And he'd stand up, and then he'd start to shift his weight back and forth, you know, and, and doing this the whole time. I think at that time, well, I forget. But anyway, um, and, and, and then he'd start to dance a little bit, you know, like this. And, and, and then he'd just whole body, sh- well, he needed to go to the bathroom. <laughs> but he was afraid to lose a minute. And so he continued to do that until I would say, you pause it or I'm bringing in a bucket out here in front of all your friends. Because he just didn't want to miss a minute. He didn't want to miss his friends going to the next level when he may not. I want to share that story with you because about, and and again, I'm two weeks out of football, so I'm still in withdrawal here, okay? But uh, two weeks ago, I was watching the Bronco game, the Super Bowl with friends and strangers, and we had two TVs, and I was with uh, one group, and most of them I knew fairly well. And uh, I went in with low expectations. Five and a half point, you know, underdog. I'm just going to go in with Jim's emotional level and not do a thing. And so I was doing fairly well. You know, I was sitting on the couch and just saying, oh, you know, this is, this is not going well. In fact, it's going pretty badly. Yeah, we may be ahead of points, but what does that mean? Uh, worse than that, we know how explosive the Panthers are. We know how good their quarterbacks are. We know how fast their, their wide receivers are, and their runners are great. And one of these days, it's just going to explode. But this goes on for three and a half quarters, and we're still ahead. And um, I stand up. And I start to go like this. <laughs> and then I, and, and then I start to dance around and move my hands. And I, but outwardly I'm saying, you know, we could win this. We might actually win this as underdogs. And we're going like this. And, and they say, Jim, do you need to go to the bathroom? No, no, no. I don't. I don't want to miss a minute. Things could go really bad if I leave now or they might get really good. And I don't want to miss a minute. So I was thinking about that afterwards, and I said, where did my son get that? (laughs) And it became very clear. His mother. (laughs) 
He got it from his mom. I am certain of that because she's a far more excitable person than me. This morning, I'm going to take you into a passionate passage that you may have read before and didn't get as much out of it because you didn't recognize what was behind it. I realize that most of us do not read the Bible in the original languages. I cannot read the Bible in the original languages and explain and understand it. But more than that, uh, you might have read this passage and you're, you're, you're trying to... What is he getting at? What are his big ideas? There seem to be so many of them. Well, what we are looking at is Paul writing a letter to his Christian friends in Ephesus, most of whom he led to Jesus Christ. It's about eight years after he has spent two years in the ministry with them, and about 25 years after he got him, he became a Christian himself, uh, when he stoned, when he was involved in the stoning of Stephen, and then went on this sort of persecution tour up to Damascus, and that's where the risen Christ sees him. Now, you need to understand this, that Paul, he is very well educated, but he's also very passionate, and also he's being carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that the writings uh, of the New Testament and the Old Testament are inspired by the Holy Spirit. So all three of these things are working together. You understand that Paul you know, is one who is passionate so much about so many things. He passionately persecutes the Christians before his conversion. And he passionately preaches Jesus Christ after his conversion and for the rest of his life. But he has a tell. Any of you play poker? Oh, I don't. Uh, no. <laughs> a tell is um, you, you have a habit that you use. When, when you're playing. So if you get a good hand, you go like this or you go like this. And, and people who understand that poker is not just the cards you have, but the facial expression or the movements of the person across the table from you, they study you. Paul has a tell. He has very bad grammar when he gets passionate. In fact, if I, if what I'm about to read you, you gave to your teacher in English comp, she would send it back to you and say, what's the matter? Did you learn any grammar? Do you know what a period is? Or a comma? Or a colon? Or a semicolon? Or an exclamation point? You see, we are looking at uh, 12 verses, verses 3 to 14. And as we read these, I want you to know it's all one sentence. And to sort of display or... Uh, get a feeling of the meaning, I'm going to try to read it the way that Paul did. If you have your Bibles, it's Ephesians chapter 1. And by the way, I'd encourage you, bring your Bibles. Don't worry. You'll have lots of company. But bring a Bible and read along with us. So I'm in uh, chapter 1 of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And it's um, I'm beginning at verse 3. Okay. 
Praise be to the Lord God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure and in his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding and he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment the times uh, as they reach their fulfillment and, uh, and, 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 and to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under what had even Jesus in him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, having believed. You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our adherence until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glorious grace. <sighs> we don't pick that up, do we, when we read it ourselves? Paul is out of control. In fact, he is so out of control, as I said, he neglects to use any punctuation. It just goes on and on and on. And what is he doing as he goes on and on and on? He's bragging on God. He's bragging on God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He just can't stop. Now, we have said that theology, if we understand it correctly, is our desire to know God. And in this excerpt that he has written, uh, because he's so well-educated, because uh, he is so excited about this one great concept called redemption, he is passionate about it, and you cannot stop him. He's excited about the God that he knows. I hope that we can in some way be a little more excited about the God that we know and are getting to know as we use this word, this one great concept called redemption and ask the question, why all the fuss, Paul? Why you get so worked up on just this one thing called redemption? Well, maybe the, the way to begin it is uh, redemption. What is it? What is it? It basically means to buy back or to repurchase a previously owned possession of yours. It's used in war with the military. What do I mean by that? Well, hostages, I mean, um, when there were prisoners of war, there would be a hostage price to get them back to your side. Sometimes it would be an exchange of soldiers, but other times it would be a monetary uh, delivery, and then these uh, soldiers would be set free and they'd go back to your side. It's also used in commerce. In other words, uh, if you read the book of Ruth, you'd realize that Boaz wants to buy a piece of land, but it's called a redemption because it involves relatives. And he's bringing it to his side of the family, not to the first, the person who has first right of refusal. So, but it's also used as bond slaves or in slavery. That means a close relative of yours 
who had uh, signed up to be a bond slave, similar to debtor's prison uh, in the old days, uh, you could go and you could pay the redemption price to free a loved one from seven years of servitude. So here's what it says in verses 7 and 8. In him, meaning Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. You want to say, well, what are the key words here? Well, redemption, it says that, how do we get redemption? What is it? Well, it seems to be an investment of God. Because it, it, it tells us that he invests his wisdom and his understanding and he pours out his grace in a resplendent and lavishing manner. And we don't see much of that. We don't waste our resources. We don't just throw them out for others to enjoy. So why is it that he would do this? And it gets down to several subjects, but one of them that I really want you to grasp and understand is he places a high value on you. On all of humanity, but he places a very high value on you. It is his desire, through his grace, through his wisdom, through his understanding, what he wants to lavish out, that he his... His value on you would be so high that he was willing to pay a ransom cost. And that ransom cost was the blood of his own son, Jesus. Now, in the news, uh, I've heard several uh, conservatives uh, complain that through prisoner exchanges or prisoner releases or trade agreements, that the United States is giving way too much and getting way too little back. I hear that. I understand that. In terms of reciprocity, it ought to be somewhat equal. It's too expensive. It's too one-sided. We've given too much, and we've gotten too little in return. Now turn that around. If God does not greatly value us, then the death of his son was a bad deal. He ought to be like Donald Trump and say, we're going to renegotiate. But God does highly value us in great and marvelous ways. His son spills his blood on the cross to satisfy the redemption cost. That's how worthy you are to God. So what is this redemption? Repurchasing a previously owned possession. And so if redemption means doing just that, the cost is God's very son. How much does daddy love you? How much does God love us, each of us, and all of us together this morning? It looks to me like it's more than we could believe or or more than we could ever, with our minds and hearts, fathom. So the issue is then why does he do it? Well, we said one was he puts a high value on us. How does that value come about? Well, we see in... um, Back to verse 8 here, he says, it talks about the riches of God's grace. So first of all, we got to understand something about grace. And it's just that, it's just not that there's grace, but it says he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. So the first thought is dealing with grace, meaning an unmerited love towards us. 
Now, we don't deal much with unmerited love in our world today. It's fairly rare. Um, and, And so when I use the word unmerited, sometimes we get confused. I like to believe that many of the things that I accomplish are merited. I worked hard for them. I'm not embarrassed by that. But are there things that just get thrown at me because, Jim, you're a doofus. And I love you anyway. So here, just just take it. I have a series of things in my life where I just go, why me? The good way, why me? Why? Well, here, the issue is God's grace means that he, uh, he lavishes it on us. And so it's not that we have all these plaques on our wall and all these degrees uh, and, 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 and all these honors. But uh, while we take pride in our merit, God's grace means he merits the honor and not us. Have you ever shifted the honor? in your life, from the things that you're trying to achieve. Now, I'm saying, don't go be a bad student because you love God. I don't mean that. Don't go say, I'm going to be terrible in my job because God's more important. I don't mean that either. But have you ever shifted your your honor to God because he gives you things that you do not merit out of his grace? Second key concept here is the issue of the mystery of his will, which we find in verse 9. It says he made known to us the mystery of his will. Now, a mystery in terms of scripture is a little different than maybe a mystery novel that you read. Uh, God's mystery is different than what we usually consider mystery. God's mystery is something that has not been revealed to this point. But now it is revealed, it is explained, and it's experienced. He made known to us the mystery of his will. And what that will is is also in that passage. But it's saying that now that we understand the mystery, we're sort of brought on the in crowd. And the mystery was how to turn rebels into redeemed family members. How to turn those who would turn their back on God into redeemed sons and daughters of God. And that's the mystery because the Jews didn't understand it. Paul didn't understand it. There are mornings I wake up and I go, why? Because I live by merit. And here's the third thing, and this is um, because we've been so focused on how much God loves us. Now let's look at God's greatness. Verse ten, it says, "To bring all things uh, in, heaven, uh, in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ." As greatly valued as you are, as worthy as you are of God's ultimate price of his son, it shifts so that at the end, the one who receives the honor when we stand before God is Jesus Christ, not ourselves. And that's the way it should be. That's the way it will be, so it not only is it the way it should be, it is. God's ultimate aim is that Jesus would be head over all of his creation, the immaterial heaven and the material earth, and and therefore every human being who places his trust in Christ. And, And God is bringing together all these different facets of humanity that he has created. And he's saying, now Christ is going to be the head over all, not certain kingdoms or certain rulers. Christ will be the head. 
So why does he do it? Well, think about this. Part of his reason for our redemption is that it fits into his plan to honor and bring honor to his son. I think if we were to talk about, you know, do a little theology, not that we experience this all the time, but we would ask, is God smart? And we'd say, yes, God's very smart. Is God powerful? Oh, yeah, extremely powerful. Is God ingenious? Yep. Is he determined? Yep. So you put all together, all those together, and you say, well, uh, why did God do this? Why did God consider redemption so important? I don't think we have the answer except in his character and his nature. And the best way I can put it is he couldn't help it. It's who he is. This is who God is. If you are doing theology and you say you're knowing God, then you say everything that he has done, this whole thing of redemption and grace and mystery and and everything else, he had to do it because it's his very self. It, It was expressed. And now we get to enjoy it and we see it for who we are on this side of the death of Christ. He couldn't help it. It's an expression of his true nature that Jesus be honored and we are part of that honor that goes to him. Now, in the rest of the passage, there's a whole list of things that I'm going to go through very quickly. And, and as we go through the list, understand there's certain things that come with it. But they're all tied up in this one great concept called redemption, buying back or repurchasing something that was previously owned possession. So the certain things come with it, and one of those is forgiveness in verse 8. It says, the forgiveness of sin of sins, which in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. So this redemption comes with the forgiveness of sins. That means when you appear before God, there won't be a trial. He will already have declared you not guilty. Wow. So it's not like we're buying you back and then we're going to put you on trial. As we're seeing now in the news, you know, did this person desert or not? He says you're forgiven for your sins. All you experience is acceptance, not judgment. Next will be, you know, this is in accordance with his will. It says in verse 9 and 10, And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. The mystery was his will according to his good pleasure. And that is to bring all things under one head, even Christ. So God's... You know, plan is from the beginning. He, you know, he, he's always had this plan knowing that he was going to do all of creation. And his desire for us is that he accomplished, what he's accomplishing is to put us right in the center of his will. We understand that even though we're mere, mere humans, he values us so much that he wants us right in the center of the will of his will and we would have this understanding uh in inside of us that there's no better place to be i mean i have my will i, I have the things that i desire and and it's not that they're all evil but there is a sense of this is why i'm here this is not just why my parents birthed me it's not about my career Why I'm here is to be in the center of God's will for all of his creation of which I am a part. So it's not so much individual, but you understand everybody who responds, he puts them in the center of his will. And then it says, in order that he, 
uh, that we who were the first to hope in verse 12 might be for the praise of his glory. And so he ends it with, you know, your redeemed position, unfortunately, is not really totally about you. I mean, you get a lot of benefits out of this, but it's not about you. It all works back to the praise of God's glory. Can you believe that your faith in Jesus Christ brings praise to God? You might say, what about my individual acts or the things I do wrong? Yeah, this is the big picture. Your faith in Jesus Christ, your life in Jesus Christ, your following of Jesus Christ is to the praise of his glory. So somewhere, somehow, there are heavenly beings saying, you turn rebels into children, God. We never thought you could do it. Now we understand the mystery too. Another key thing that comes with this is the relationship that we have with Christ. And, and what it's saying here is, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. This term, in Christ, is used 64 times in the New Testament, almost all of them by Paul, and over 30 just in this book alone. What does it mean to be, in these six chapters of Ephesians, to be in Christ? Uh, you know, we, we sometimes have a concept like Christ and I are buddies, so we're, we're pretty close. But that doesn't mean you're in Christ. And the best way I can put it is if this is Christ and this is you, you're enveloped by him. All the spiritual blessings that, that he has, he envelops you and gives them to you. That's why it says we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, we're going to have to talk about this because we're going to see it time and time and time again. But it's it's similar to like, um, did you ever have a friend that didn't look like you but was like a brain twin? They thought so much like you and acted so much like you, you wondered, how did we not grow up in the same home? This brain twin might finish your thoughts, finish your sentences, might even start a sentence before, I knew you were going to say this. This is what it means to be in Christ. Not only are you reflecting him, but you're becoming more and more like him. And you, and that is because he has sort of enveloped, or I don't want to use smothered, but you get it? And by the way, I'm, there's not a whole lot of good words to explain this. And I've been reading, okay? For 40 years, I've been reading, okay? 45 now, actually. And, and I, you know, it, it falls short. The very best theologians among us, it falls short, but you can't escape it. So you have this relationship, and it's him over you. The next thing is, is that you are, you know, when you come to Christ, there's a guarantee that comes along with it. In verse 13 and 14, it says, having believed, you were marked uh, in him, in him again, in Christ, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit. So the guarantee is, is this seal. A seal used to be put on a letter, a wax, you know, wax was melted and then you put your ring on it or something like that. It says the contents were written by this person, by that seal. And if it was unbroken, it means it hasn't been edited. This is exactly what God wants you to know. Well, the, the seal or the guarantee, uh, of, of the contents of what we are reading and what we know about God come from the Holy Spirit 
who has been given to you, it has not been altered in any way. What was in the letter was composed by the author. No editing. And that's the guarantee. That's what the Holy Spirit is when he comes into your life. And finally, there's an inheritance. And this is so good. Um, It says, guaranteeing our inheritance. One of the phrases that I didn't use here is it says, you were adopted. And so when you come into a a family, and I, I once looked out over in our previous church, and I counted five adopted children on one Sunday morning. And friends, we only had 60, 70 people then, okay? So five of them were adopted. And I marveled at that. And they all came from special situations where the families or the parents said, we, we just want to add. We, 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 we want this person to be with us for the rest of our lives. And, it, and it's an amazing thing of the heart where you say, yes, we did not give birth, but yes, they are our own. And so the adoption here is that you become a part of God's eternal will, part of his heavenly family, not just for a moment, but for eternity. And once again, it's not about what you do or how you live, but it's about what God has done. He has given you, as you have become his child, an inheritance that is for eternity. Now, what I have said to this point, um, you know, I'm trying to be as excited as, as, as Paul. I don't think I'm doing a great job. But I'm doing the best I can. But many of you will remember this to understand the difference of the way we live versus the way God wants us to get this. Um, 1994, uh, Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks produced a film called Saving Private Ryan. And rightfully so, it honors the greatest generation that saved the human race from the Axis powers, uh, Germany, Italy, and Japan. Uh, It also, though, depicts a value not only of the greatest generation, but of every generation. A small patrol is sent behind enemy lines after the Normandy invasion to find and extract uh, one James Francis Ryan, the only surviving brother of four in that war. They find him, but the cost is great. Most of the patrol is killed trying to save just this one person, the last to die, is Captain John Miller, played by Tom Hanks, who with his last breath says to Private Ryan, you have your life. And then he says two or three times, earn it. Wow. Every time I see that, I'm touched. And, you know, I'm not a crier, but I I start to tear up a little bit and I go oh man what a fr-. you know your last words you you know you you fulfill this mission private ryan is saved you're dying and you tell him you have your life earn it so now it, it you know right after that is said the, the 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 camera goes to private ryan and he ages like 40 years right there in front of your face and now he's an old man and he's gone to the uh, cemetery for the American soldiers at Normandy. And he's looked up the grave's uh, marker of Captain John Miller. He kneels before it, and his wife kneels right there with him. And those words come back to him, and he looks at his wife, and he says, 
have I been a good man? His wife is stunned. After all these years, you're asking me, are you a good man? You think I'd stick around if you weren't? And and she's stunned. And she says, yes, you're a good man. Where did that question come from? Only James Francis Ryan knows. What he's asking for was the purpose of my extending my life, of my not dying in the Normandy invasion. Has it been a good one? Have I earned this life that I have lived? And friends, this is the way humanity thinks. There's nothing wrong with it. It causes me to cry. I know three other men. They're all dead now. But they were each Marines at the invasion of the island called Iwo Jima. And each of them told me the same story. I could not believe it because I said, did you meet? Did you? Never heard of them. Never heard of these guys. But they were all there. And it's called a foxhole conversion. And each of them told me their story. They said, I was in a foxhole. People were dying all around me. And I said, Lord, if you let me survive this war, I will serve you the rest of my life. Each of them survived. Otherwise, I couldn't tell you the story. And each of them served God the rest of their lives. Doctors, evangelists. Amazing accounts. But they didn't earn it. By God's grace, they survived and others did not. There were probably others who who said that same prayer who did not. But they survived by God's grace and then they lived that gift. You see, here's what we're trying to say is that as we become more and better theologians, we, we want to get to know God. We understand that his spiritual reality will often trump our material limitations. He's saying here, you're rich. All of Ephesians has been summarized by saying you are rich with the spiritual blessings that God has given you in the heavenly places. Some of them you don't feel, you don't, you don't, you're not even sure you're experiencing, but God says these are yours. So God is different than humans. God does not want us to live in fear about his love for us or his plan for us. He tells us that he has redeemed us, bought us back. And then he blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And God never says, now go earn it. Never. What God does say is, I paid for it. You will never earn it. You have been given it. It is who you are in Christ. Now go live it. My son earned it for you. My own son. One side says, you have life, now go earn it. The other side says, Jesus earned it, now go live it. Our lives are lives of thankfulness to God for what he did through his son on the cross. I'm still touched by people who earn and work hard. Don't, don't, I'm not saying that's wrong, but I am saying they're missing one of these great spiritual blessings where God says, I've earned it through the death of my son, Jesus. 
So how are you living? How is your theology? As you get to know God in following Jesus Christ, can you say, it's been earned for me, and out of thankfulness I live it? Then you're right in the middle of God's will. Let's pray. First of all, as this passage does, it tells us three times that this is all to the praise of his glorious grace. Lord Jesus, you earned, you were the ransom price for my redemption. And the ransom price for my adoption into your forever family. I will not face trial of whether I am good enough for it. You will not have second thoughts. And there's no way that I could ever earn this. But I freely received it. And I want to live well. I want to display every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms that you have lavished on me so that my life is different. Influencing others into the praise of your glorious grace. And I have to ask that maybe as some are thinking a new theology this morning, not the old anthropology, that you've never seen it this way. God earned it. You live it. And you want to cross the line of faith this morning and just say, yes, I'm placing my trust in Christ Jesus. I need to know a lot more. I'm I'm new at this, but I'm placing my trust in Christ. If you have never done this before, we would simply and earnestly say, why not now? And if you have, come and talk to me. I'd love to, to pray with you and, uh, and just get you started. And all of God's people said, amen.